Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always an honor to be with all of you. Thank you for joining me this week. And I have to open this week wishing my fellow Muslims a blessed Ramadan. Ramadan starts in only a few days on April 1st in the evening, and it's a month of reflection, a month of atonement, a month of worship and prayer and thankfulness and gratitude and praying for those who are less fortunate. We think of the people of Ukraine, the millions of refugees who overnight, because of the evil coming out of Putin and Russia, they were invaded, their homes were no longer theirs, their property was being bludgeoned, destroyed, bombed from above, and they had to fight for who they are, for what they are, for what they believe in, and many of them stayed to fight. Women and children, those who were frail, had to leave, obviously, as is normal in war. As a Syrian American, I reflect on the over decade of war, civil war, that Syria had, but also at the hands of a strongman that had no conscience, that ultimately did not care about his people, that thought he was Syria, and that Syria was simply his to lay waste on, as the Ba'ath Party has done for over 60 years in Syria. Putin's party, Putin's mission is no different. And in this Ramadan, day to day, as we fast from food, water, nutrition, from dawn to sunset, we will remember the people of Ukraine, the people of Syria, the Uyghurs who are in concentration camps being forced to eat, forced to drink during Ramadan, forced to rip up their Koran and learn the Communist Party of China's doctrine. And we must remember them. We must remember humanity. I'm sure there are many more peoples that you are concerned about with your loved ones, and in this Ramadan we will think of them. So have a blessed Ramadan, my fellow Muslims. And um, now... Let's go on with the program this week. I want to talk to you about Ukraine. I want to talk to you about some of the corruption. Yes, the corruption that's been happening in our own military as a result of this push of critical race theory. And also a little bit about two, a doctor and her sister that vanished only to be found to have committed assisted suicide in Sweden. And... We'll be with you in a sec. Let's start by looking at Ukraine and not only what Putin's belligerence, his invasion, and uh, other aspects are doing, but at the end of the day, I think there's a lesson for those of us who've been studying the Syrian situation, the radical Islamists and ISIS, etc. here that carries over into a lot of these 
folks with common enemies, common fascistic ideologies. And we see the Chechnyan fighters have found themselves at home. Their imam, their mufti in Chechnya declaring a jihad on behalf of Russia, their homeland, against the Ukrainians. So how does that happen? Well, first, uh, let's let's talk about first the nationalistic Putonians. No, I know that's not what they're called, but uh, the supporters of Putin, if you will. There was a great piece by Rachel Ehrenfeld from the American Center for Democracy that uh, looked at um, the reasons of why, why now, why 2022 did Putin invade Ukraine? Everybody's acting as if this was some kind of surprise, and you know, it's always in the history. Everybody's uh, that's uh, got uh, some knowledge of the region has been pointing to the fact that the history has basically pointed this out. And if you look at the trajectory over the past few years, it really has been headed that way. She points out uh, a number of significantly important things. She lays out 14 points that are important. First, she notes that uh, Putin feels a sense of responsibility for bringing Russian speakers, especially former subjects of the USSR, back into Russia to recreate the old Russian empire. And, you know, he notes that uh, he succeeded in occupying and exiting South Ossetia and Abzakia and Russia without any pushback. It's a secular state of 145 million people, of whom 80% are Christian, Orthodox Christian, and ethnic Russians, and nearly 15% are Muslims as of December 2021. The growth rate was negative 0.2%, so it's uh, quite uh, uh, small. And by 2050, Putin sees Muslims becoming uh, up to 30% of the population, which can, as many of you have listened before to me, know that sometimes with the Bolsheviks, other, other revolutions, the Arab Awakening, showed that you really only need 10 to 20 percent, 10 to 12 percent of a population in order to turn it over, in order to begin to have revolution and change. So annexing more Russians will shift that demographic. That's number one and two. Number three, this is an important history that nobody seems to be covering. He invaded Georgia in 2008 and the entire operation took only five days, in which Russia succeeded in occupying and annexing South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Russia. The rest of the world paid little attention, as Rachel points out. In March 2014, he invaded the Crimean, the Crimean Peninsula, part of Ukraine. He succeeded in occupying the Republic of Crimea. This was all under the Obama administration. Then the next point was that Putin watched with total dismay when current Ukrainian leader Zelensky became president in 2019 with 73% of the vote. 73%. And this is what he saw as a Russian state. In 2015, and on, this was sort of setting the stage for the success of Zelensky. And he could not take this anymore, so therefore it warranted an invasion. Next, he calculated that Germany, which is energy dependent on Russia, would do nothing when he invades Ukraine. 
And other than severe economic sanctions, they really haven't. Now, are they going to stop Nord Stream 2? To the Taliban terrorists and his catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the rest of the world, he realized that the national security team for Biden is incompetent. And he understands that America is in the decline. And it's not really a threat. So therefore, now was no better time than any other. Putin's team in Vienna was encouraging the Americans to agree to a new JCPOA, and Russia was necessary for that joint agreement. And even as Biden had a gaffe this week in which he said that uh, Biden must, I'm sorry, that Putin must no longer stay in power, and CNN even tried to cover for him by saying that it was inappropriate and and certain writers of the Atlantic and others were saying it was inappropriate to cover it but CNN did cover it and then and then they said they shouldn't have covered it it was just sort of bizarre because it inflamed things and yet Biden just sort of was viscerally responding like uncle Joe is known to say sometimes off the cuff but yet that off the cuff remark is juxtaposed going on with the Chechnyans. You know, the Chechnyans, and I'll tell you, the bottom line is, is that the jihadists, the jihadists are, the, they're killers who just will kill on any side of an equation. They don't care about nationalism. They're not Russian nationalists. They're not Chechnyan nationalists. Their race might be Chechnyan, uh, but they're, Ideology is Islamist. It's radical supremacist Islamist, part of the global caliphate. And it's not a surprise that there are jihadists fighting on both sides, Chechnyan jihadists fighting on both sides of this conflict. They both want to kill non-Muslims, kill Christians. They both want to kill people they perceive as white, even though the Caucasus and others are Muslims and they're white, but they want to sort of uh, kill the other three with the jihad. Hopefully, I think they're on the verge of doing that. The dependence of Europe on Russian oil is quite a liability. And I think globalization, as we know it, is over. Many of us have called for simply sharing economic success with other free markets, which limits it to Europe, Australia, and other free markets. And I think this invasion is going to coalesce that a lot more quickly. Now, China is a whole other liability. And next, the other reason was Putin did not fear Biden. There were no no resistance that he was concerned about, knew that Biden would retract if he pushed forward. And then Biden's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan as he surrendered and ultimately, where it will end? It might use an iron fist to push them down and then say, oh my gosh, this is what we have to do while the while they were radicalizing them. Now things are, from the last year or two, much as the government's not changing much in its draconian approach, the, the radicalization of the ideas of Wahhabism is changing in Saudi Arabia, those same ideas that inspired ISIS. But... The fact that Chechnyans were allowed to run in and jihad and serve with ISIS against Assad is just sort of the, the mess, the chaos 
that Putin uses the radical Islamists for and continues to radicalize them, and the method in which Putin counters militant uprisings within his population is the method in which they are radicalized. So that's where we are with Ukraine, with the history of long war. It's certainly not going to be as short as his other incursions, as, as Biden called race, if you will. And the Mufti, who is the right hand of Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechenian strongman and close Putin ally, served as head of the Chechen Republic since 2007, got his Mufti to declare the jihad, and now they have hundreds and if not thousands of fighters going into Ukraine to fight on behalf of Russia. We saw this with Georgia, we saw it with Syria, and the Syrian jihadists went in to fight side by side in that one with ISIS. Now, it's interesting, why did Putin let that happen, even though you'd think with the formula I just gave you that the Chechens would have been fighting with Assad? Well, that was a bit of a stretch to get them to fight with Assad. The Russian soldiers might have, the Iranian soldiers certainly did. But the Chechnyans were allowed in, and there's a lot of good reporting on this, because remember, the ability of Syria to use chemical weapons, to use carpet bombing of, of neighborhoods, to to use the ability to commit war crimes was really facilitated by the fact that they said there were terrorists everywhere that were rampaging and, and also committing war crimes. And to the extent that ISIS did what it did, that's true. Now, that was part of the chaos. That was part of the Arab Dictator Manual 101, which is that they allow, they allow terrorism to happen as the Saudis radicalize their people. And, then, and we see a chaos that the jihadists always seem to be a part of. And that chaos is related to them playing any side that gets them to be able to kill people that are non-Muslims or they see as apostates. So, as I mentioned, whether it's the Saudis radicalizing ISIS and on the one hand, the Arab dictators claiming that uh, uh, they are fighting against terrorism when in fact the opium of the masses, being radical Islam, radicalizes them and persists to allow them to have a global cover for allowing sort of a, a police state existence. And that police state existence we see, whether it's the Egyptian government of the fascist National Democratic Party uh, having uh, every few years a push and a pull with the Muslim Brotherhood that they allow to get seats in parliament and then ultimately they push back and uh, imprison them and uh, declare war on them. And now uh, el-Sisi has uh, come to some type of um, a clear policy in which he has basically outlawed the party. And as we saw with Mubarak and Sadat before him, it's on and off with the Islamists. And the meanwhile, the moderate population is somewhat lost in the middle unable to organize because of an authoritarian regime. And when the Islamists get into power, it's even worse because they've been radicalized behind closed doors in the mosques. We saw the same with ISIS as the population initially was fighting for a revolution surrounding powers that had interest in maintaining Assad in power, be it Russia, be it Iran, and the Khomeinists fueled the battle, fueled 
the radicalization of ISIS, whether it's Qatar, Turkey, the Saudis, on and on. The bottom line is, is the wasteland was the middle population in Syria. Yes, there was very little civil society existing or to save as far as uh, organizations and intellectual discourse because it was an authoritarian society and that revolution sought to change it. But the powers that be, the oligarchs, the kleptocrats, the, autocar- the autocrats, the monarchs, the fascists of the Arabs of the Ba'athist party in Syria persisted and continued to say they were fighting ISIS, but it took America, it took General Mattis, Secretary of Defense under Trump, to do a four- to six-month operation until ISIS was actually wiped out. Why did we have to do that when the Syrians couldn't? It wasn't just because the military might. It's because they were aiming in the wrong neighborhoods. They were aiming to the moderates that were really more of an existential threat, and ISIS gave them the ability to claim that they were fighting against terrorism, but they left them pretty much alone. And Russia sort of fueled that and allowed the Chechnyan jihadists to come in and fight with ISIS against Assad. They didn't care if they never came back or if they got slaughtered because they also got rid of some of their jihadists. And and uh, many reporters and journalists have talked about this that were in Syria, in Russia, in Chechnya, and elsewhere, about the flow of radical jihadists across the borders into Syria. And I think the same thing's happening now with the Ukraine. Ultimately, ISIS, you'll find Chechnyan reports that they are fighting on both sides of this equation, be it, you know, they're not Russian nationalists. Uh, Those jihadists are not uh, ultimately pro-Ukrainian, They claim that if they fight on one side, it's because of the jihad and certainly the head of Ukraine, I'm sorry, the the head of Chechnya has, per his masters, uh, uh, asked the mufti to declare it a jihad because they needed to get troops in there. Are they fighting in a coordinated fashion? Unlikely. It's just chaotic at will destruction. And sometimes there's been debates. There's been feuds going on in which some of them go and end up fighting on the Ukrainian side because they hate the Russians more than they hate the Ukrainians. But there's certainly nothing about love happening there. This is jihad. This is a desire to destroy nation states, be it Russia, Ukraine, Syria, whatever it might be, because they want to create a caliphate. They want to advance a jihad. And that's what this battle is about. It's about advancing jihad for the radical jihadists, And I talked to you last time in the podcast about the American sort of hypocrisy when the Palestinian Islamists at CARE and elsewhere seem to have this hypocritical approach to the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. They didn't care about right and wrong or moral. They made a moral equivalency with Israel and the Palestinian areas, forgetting about Hamas, forgetting about the terror operations, forgetting about the threats to the Israeli citizens, all that didn't matter. It was really about simply somehow a moral equivalency that exists there. So at the end of the day, you have the key learning point here is it never matters about true morality, true fighting against war crimes. It's really about advancing their cause. That's what the red-green axis is about. And ladies and gentlemen, you're getting a clinic in the red-green axis. 
What do I mean? Well, that red-green axis is when the far-left progressivists that ultimately become become authoritarian socialists and and uh, apparatchiks of a major major governmental controlled uh, uh, authoritarian regime, be it Russia, be it China, whatever it might be, the the far left communists, if you will, ultimately are walking hand in hand with the Islamists and voting hand in hand with them in institutions like the UN, where Iran and Venezuela, Iran and Russia work hand in hand. And that's the Red-Green Alliance. And I've talked to you on this program before about the Red-Green Alliance coming home. We see the progressivists of AOC and other far-left socialists that have caused chaos domestically through fueling an anti-police, anti-American sentiment that seeks to destruct our foundations and destroy our history under the name, under the guise of so-called equality and diversity. And they work hand-in-hand with the Islamists. The Islamists who, by the way, they can't even stomach. The Islamists who, by the way, share nothing with them as far as promoting gay rights, women's rights, uh, feminism, and, and other uh, types of projects of the far left, but they don't care. They ultimately hate the same thing, which is free markets, liberty, Americanism, Western liberal democracy. They want to see that defeated, and they do so with alliances with a common hate. And that's what we're seeing happen here. Every war, every conflict, this is why our testimony as as Muslim reformers was, I think, so important post 9-11 because we were giving you all warnings that you might find these Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in America, small little groups that uh, are never going to affect as less than 1% of the population what's happening in America because they're such a small population. But at the end of the day, you have to pay attention because they're working with the far left globally. And sure enough, 20 years later now after 9-11, we are seeing these things come to fruition. We are seeing them working hand-in-hand in in an active invasion of a foreign country in which the Islamists don't care about the ultimate territorial gains. They just want to scorch the earth, which they believe is part of their jihad. So pay attention, ladies and gentlemen, eyes wide open. It doesn't mean America needs to be involved uh, with any of our sons and daughters. That blood is not ours to shed. It is is not our battle to fight. Um, so yes, do I think we should have a side? Absolutely. Ignore the, the, the power, at least be able to discern what is propaganda and what is not when they're talking about Ukraine, when they're talking about Russia, because... They'll attempt to manipulate what we do. But at the end of the day, Ukraine was trying to build a democracy, whether it had certain problems with it or not. That's not the issue here. The issue is there's clear differences in what is good and evil in a battle where one massive gas station of oligarchs, Russia does when it invades a country because of racial dominance of wanting to recoalesce some Russian-speaking peoples into what used to be the USSR, and then ultimately it sucks in any fighters, any method it can to try to decrease the stance and strength of the country that is next to it, Ukraine, that it doesn't even recognize as a country. 
a lot more there, but let me leave that right there with you, and there'll be more to come as I give you some of the insights into, I think, what are important considerations when it comes to sort of this red-green axis. I'll be right back with the next segment. I want to talk to you about our own military and why we are the least ready to fight as we've been in generations. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. I'd like to finish today's uh, discussion to uh, look at our own military. How ready are we to fight a war? How ready are we to defend our homeland? And I can tell you, as uh, somebody who's been fighting against radical Islamists uh, since 9-11 and even before, and whose family escaped persecution in Syria to cherish American freedom here and also religious liberty and many other forms of freedom that we are so blessed to have here in America, I can tell you that my grandfather, my father, my parents, and generations before me have always looked to America that not only is our Constitution uh, uh, the, the special sauce, but ultimately the special sauce of the recipe is the fact that our military is an honorable fighting force, is the most moral fighting force on the planet, and really, truly join as a service to their country to keep our citizens free and do so under the orders of our civilian government. If you look at the wasteland that has become civil society in the Middle East and as the revolutions tried to to fight those in the last 10 years, you see that the power that is centralized in the government is something that the people have had a very difficult, if not impossible, time to defeat. Because, again, you look at our Second Amendment here in America and others, a, a people that cannot defend itself are ultimately doomed to live under authoritarianism. And the point I want to get to here and focus on is what is happening in our military. I've been blessed to uh, get to know a, a number of good friends, uh, many of whom are formis, former uh, flag officers. And having served 11 years in the U.S. Navy, they reached out to me to uh, be an advisor to their group called STARS, Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. I've talked to you about them before. But as we look at various places around the planet that are beginning to become inflamed, and, and again, I still strongly believe that our men and women in uniform don't have a role in the Ukraine, and that ultimately that price is not something in which the calculus makes sense for us to be involved on the ground, certainly to support the Ukrainians in their need for arms, in their need for um, whatever pressure we can put against their enemy that's invading them unprovoked in an uh, uh, ongoing war crime. But having said that, there's always in the back of our minds when we're going to be called upon to serve and to have another war, God forbid. Can we fight one conflict, two conflicts at the same time? Some say no, that we're somewhere between one and two. What if Taiwan uh, becomes a conflict? What if Afghanistan requires a redeployment of troops? What if Iraq gets flared? What if Saudi Arabia is attacked by Iran, on and on. 
there's a decreasing appetite for any of that, but I will tell you that the health of our society is directly proportional, if not even exponentially proportional to the health of our military. So a lot of these maladies and pathologies that you have seen being pushed through academia, through media, the racism, the uh, so-called programs in equity, which are really just uh, a, a form of ethnic and uh, cultural division based in identity and race and not truly based in a, a desire to end divisiveness and partisanship and others. I, I've seen some pieces now coming from former military that really, I think, highlight what's happening. Brent Ramsey and Michael Peffley wrote about how social justice is killing the military. They said some 41% of the military identify as members of minority groups. The DOD reported February 9th, 2021, just over a year ago. That number is much higher than 24% of the population who identify as non-white. We all bleed red, service members say. Years ago, when a commanding general asked for a report on all disciplinary cases by color, a black chief master sergeant from rural Alabama, whose parents grew up under actual racism, reported back, quote, all our soldiers with disciplinary cases are green, unquote. There's a culture of unity. There's a culture of unit cohesion. And there's a culture of the fact that we should honor diversity when it comes to ideas, when it comes to uh, different tastes and, and, and music and art and creativity and other things. But things that are simply skin deep don't play a role in animating anything that is related to the cohesiveness that is the American military, that whose role is simply to keep the rest of America safe. The least racist people in America are in our military. It's obvious to all who've served, including myself. I, I had the honor to serve on the USS El Paso, and that ship, the suppo was Mormon, the deck officer was Jewish, our XO was Protestant, our CO was Catholic, I was the doc, and I'm Muslim. We used to have wonderful interfaith scriptural conversations that would happen uh, um, with deep debates about the role of various uh, religious figures in history. But when it came to the USS El Paso, when it came to our unit, when it came to our mission, we accepted the orders from our superiors. We accepted the mission. We went to Somalia, Operation Restore Hope, yeah, as, a, as an American citizen, I remember thinking, what are we doing here? Tribal society, our, uh, we, we left, we went there to take food. We left seeing our troops dragged in the streets because we weren't allowed to protect ourselves like we needed to. It was a humanitarian mission. But yet, we did it with honor, and never did we ever perceive that there was racial or ethnic differences that in any ways animated who we were. We were animated by the Constitution that we swore to protect and defend and by the, by the, by the code to defend America and our fellow citizenry against enemies, foreign and domestic. And yet, why now, 
as Ramsey and Peffley lay out in, Ameri- in uh, The American Thinker, why now has President Biden declared white supremacy as America's number one threat? Why has the DOD secretary created a counter-extremism working group to uncover extremism in the ranks? And by the way, that's a wor- the same working group that I criticized because it was bringing in significant Islamist sympathizers in to define counter-extremism. Now, the Islamist threat supposedly doesn't even exist and they're dealing with the threat of white supremacy. And then the actual record, racial, radical incidents, is not the reason. The number of cases is tiny. With 3.1 million in uniform, DOD reports less than 100 annual incidents of extremism without even defining the extremism. When the DOD spokesman was asked for specifics of extremism, he did not have them. If the government declared that trolls are a threat to the republic and began an investigation, would we nod our heads and say, I want to know about the troll rage? Because as a child, we learn from fairy tales how vicious trolls can be. Now the fairy tales are about white racism. And yet, while admitting that 41% of the military identified as minorities, the DOD reported that diversity, inclusion, and equity were military necessities. Diversity, inclusion, and equity is the language of critical race theory. And diversity, as they lay out, is the promotion of division based on the identity quotas or targets. Inclusion is code for exclusion of specific groups based on race, gender, and sexual identity. And equity is the CRT's ambiguous terminology easily confused with equality. Equity is equality of outcomes, usually quotas, which is reformulated Marxism. So, with that being implemented through the Navy, through the military, you can't help but start to ask the question, where is this headed? Where is it headed? The chairman of the Joint Chiefs defended the CRT program and testified to Congress that he wanted to understand white rage. The United States Military Academy has been teaching CRT along with White Rage seminars as reimagined Shakespeare. It's amazing to me that if you look at what is being taught, what that's doing to the culture of the military, a military that, you know, listen, the, the, you can find anecdotes of cases of, of uh, extremism and uh, others that uh, needed discipline. But that's different than taking the the valuable time that these military officers have and enlisted have and telling them that they they need to spend it, not in training, not in becoming more force-ready, not in unifying and becoming more cohesive units, but rather on telling themselves that this country was founded in racism, on on uh, other socialist ideas and the CRT, Marxist ideas, and somehow that makes sense. I kid you not, George Teki, or I don't know if I pronounce his last name correct, but the, the far, far left communist socialist, former Star Trek star, was a, a keynote speaker at an academy event highlighting CRT and highlighting all of these issues, which to me, has nothing to do with force readiness or anything relevant to the training of our future military leaders. And by the way, fine, you don't want to cancel uh, George Takai. Uh, I, I will tell you that 
I was supposed to speak at one of the military academies a few years ago, and a lot of my colleagues that had taken that up the flagpole had resistance, and it never happened. Resistance, not well, why? I'm, I'm Muslim. I'm a, a minority religion. Uh, you'd think I'd fit their diversity profiles, but no, I wasn't the right one. I wasn't singing from the same hymnal of the CRT folks, the identity politic, the racially divisive folks that want to sing to the military that they are racist, that they are internally flawed and need correction versus telling them how they're protecting the greatest country on the planet. General Chris Petty wrote that, he said, if you look at today's diversity and how much it damages our military, it sounds great. Diversity is great. That's part of the problem. Today's diversity, however, isn't what it used to be. Rather than diverse experiences, backgrounds, and perspectives that promote healthy group decisions and outcomes, diversity has come to mean only race, ethnicity, and sex. Unfortunately, Today's diversity is replacing our long and largely successful journey toward equal opportunity. And that's such a great point. We all want equal opportunity, equal access, equal respect under the law. Absolutely. Is that perfect? Absolutely not. It needs a lot of work. But do we really think that our military is the place in which we need to indoctrinate these ideas? one of the most equal corporations or, or, or organizations, if you will, that exists in America. When I wore my uniform, whether I was an 01, 02, or 03, or 04, I felt that I was equal to everybody else because we were serving under the same hierarchy, same institution, same organization that was based on not only the UCSMG, Uniform Court, um, UCMJ, the Uniform Court of Military Justice, but also on the same mission. As the general goes on, today's diversity advocates measure organizational success by race, ethnicity, and sex, factors that have nothing to do with performance or potential, yet they are influencing accessions, advancements, and promotion across the force. Prioritizing racial and sex-based goals clearly undermines the importance of performance and merit. Sadly, today's military leaders are often downplaying talents, experience, and skills in favor of skin color and sex in their personnel decisions. The result is the less capable force with less capable leaders. The new push for diversity only destroys trust. When merit and performance are downplayed in the name of quotas and goals, excellence is undermined. In this environment, leaders are increasingly doubted as representing the very best of the organization. Not only is this disheartening, but it also makes them question their leader's abilities. If a leader or commander is seen as a diversity hire, he will always be suspect. This is also devastating to the thousands of deserving minorities and women who are rightfully rising to the top on merit alone. And these growing doubts erode trust. Lieutenant General McMaster recently commented, saying nothing could be more debilitating to combat effectiveness than adherence to CRT or critical race theory. The theory's proposal that people be judged by identity category rather than by character and the ability to contribute to a team. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, and we have a letter from a West Point graduate 
a letter to a West Point graduate from a West Point graduate from '96, who was writing to the commandant of the school system, that school system being the academies, and he said the following. And this is an open letter. Open letter to L- Lieutenant General Daryl Williams, 60th Superintendent of the United States Military Academy. Lieutenant General Williams, on March 14, 2022, you sent the following letter to the Long Gray Line via email regarding allegations of cadet criminal misconduct in Florida. Remember, there were four cadets that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think, in a podcast that were found using cocaine critically ill as a result of that being laced with fentanyl. And the letter from the superintendent says, the academy remains committed to educating, training, and inspiring the core of cadets. I encourage cadets to take care of each other and themselves. Thank you for your continued commitment. He said, initial reports indicate that the four cadets were transported to nearby hospitals after allegedly being exposed to a substance that, that, that may have contained fentanyl. The substance was cocaine. Now the superintendent can't even in a letter recognize that it was cocaine, a substance. And now this letter from, from let me see, from John Hughes, U.S. Military Academy class of 1996, first of his class, third generation West Pointer, four combat tours of duty, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a physician. Dr. Hughes said in the following, your letter regarding the cadets purchasing and overdosing on drugs is deeply concerning. As superintendent, you have neither the authority nor the right to restrain the freedom of speech of graduates of the United States Military Academy. So that letter, by the way, and I didn't want to read it all to you, he told the long gray line of graduates and others not to talk about this publicly, not to sort of let it degrade the force, strength, etc. And this doctor is telling him, you have neither the authority nor the right to restrain the freedom of speech of graduates of the U.S. Military Academy. As grads, we have we have as much a right as any American to address grievances with our country and our alma mater. Further, you use the phrase exposed to a substance is very different than the alleged reality that they willfully and purposely purchased and ingested cocaine. As the superintendent and guardian of the honor code, this borders into equivocation of events to mitigate the damage to West Point's reputation. What happened to the cadet prayer that challenges us to choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong and never to be content with a half-truth when the whole can be won? More importantly, West Point has a recent history of serious ethical problems. In 2013, Lieutenant General David Huntoon, 58th Superintendent, retired from his post and received a letter of reprimand for unethical conduct with subordinates. The 59th Superintendent, Castlin became president of South Carolina after retiring only to resign in 2021 over allegations of plagiarism. In 2020, we learned of an online cheating scandal involving 73 cadets. 2021 saw the shameful treatment and expulsion of unvaccinated cadets revealed on national news and a controversial preoccupation with social issues. And in 2022, now cadets on spring break purchased and overdosed on cocaine-laced with other drugs. And this all, as General Hughes notes, 
follows on the heels of America's longest war ending in embarrassment and disaster in Kabul in 2021. And I talked to all of you about that, about how I'm not even a military strategist. And it was painfully obvious that that was the most uh, uh, screwed up, to use uh, a kind language here, and the Navy used to call that FUBAR, it was screwed up, uh, 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 lack of, of planning in, in withdrawal with the, with the airfields shut down first and then a, a massive swarm in Kabul with a terror attack on people waiting. It was just, just insanity. Back to Hughes's letter. At a recent class reunion when confronted with the Afghanistan debacle and asked what West Point, the preeminent military leadership institution in the world, was doing to analyze the actions and behavior of senior American military leaders, West Point's current dean replied everything was great and did not foresee the need for any changes. He was flanked by another grad who went on to caution that the West Point graduates about not believing misinformation in the news and that Kabul was not as bad as we think, and further that the U.S. military was as ready as ever to fight and win wars. And he goes on to conclude, there's no doubt that the military academy and many other areas of the military at large has serious leadership problems. And he goes on. God bless him for writing that open letter to the superintendent. There's a lot to learn here. I can tell you that if you look at whatever force we're fighting, when not, not only does the military academy reflect some of the dissolving culture that's happening in our country and the flyover culture between Los Angeles and New York, uh, the, the, the uh, dissolution of conservative values, family values, and others that have been the cornerstone of Americanism, but that being infused by globalism, by global movements that are part of that red-green axis of identity movements, I will tell you that the thing that protected me from being radicalized, the thing that not only protected me from being radicalized but made me want to fight political Islam was the fact that I wanted to die for America, that I wanted to defend this country and that the only thing I would ever die for is America. And that's why I served, and that's why I continue to do the work that I do. And I think there are millions of Americans that feel that. But if our institutions that are built upon feeding off of that energy that our citizens have in loving this country with a passion, with being patriots, if we can't uphold institutions that epitomize those values and instead force-feed them, an image of America that is not what they experienced. Certainly there were things that we needed to mature as a country, and I've talked to you about CRT before. Certainly there are errors and, and imperfections that we corrected. Heck, the bloodiest war in our history was the Civil War that was fought over correcting the evil that was slavery. But does that make our foundations evil? Nothing is related to what was happening at the time. Our Jeffersonian democracy, our founding fathers, and yet we expect somehow to, to maintain troops ready today 
by trying to tell them that this entire history, if you look at the 1619 project of the New York Times, that not only is an abysmal failure in which most Americans exposed to it have become offended, but it just is propaganda. Our enemies would be the, the Russian, the Putinists, the Khomeinists, the Muslim Brotherhood, the Chinese Communist Party, all of them, if they put their resources together, would not have more effectively infused into American educational system something that told us that we are born from rot than something like the 1619 Project. Is that a reality, really, of what most Americans feel? I don't think so. So you need look no further to where America's headed than the fact that our troops have shown a rot now. If you look at what I just reviewed to you from that doctor, from that lieutenant general, and his letter to the superintendent about year after year, plagiarism scandals, drug scandals. This is not the honor code of the military we know now, is it? Can the ship be turned around? Absolutely. But we need to pay attention to these institutions, not only our private institutions, but our public institutions and what ideas are infusing them. You see what's happening in schools around the country as parents, uh, uh, as Ezra Nomani and others call them the, their mama bears, are beginning to wake up to learn about what's happening in the curriculum of their schools in states like Arizona and Florida now have transparency laws signed by their government, their governor that demand that the citizenry of their states know transparently what's being taught in their classes. Can you imagine that that was so hard to pass, that taxpayers' money being put into an education doesn't have a right to know exactly what's being taught to their kids? It was just bizarre. And meanwhile, the Biden administration was trying to tell parents that they were the terrorists somehow because they were getting animated at school board meetings. There's a lot more there. But God bless this country, the passion that we have for maintaining its values and having it continue to lead the world is just beyond importance. And as Reagan said, we're only one generation away from losing it. And it can be quickly, quickly lost if we don't garner the strength and the unity to put it back together at every corner from schools to media to government to our military. Thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to be back with you. And this is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.